0: One of the things that I think we need to really look at is the fact that non-white children represent about 77% of child sex traffic victims here in the United States. And that is huge, that is huge.
1: In Season 4, we are giving a voice to the often voiceless victims of trafficking and exploitation. We will share about people who are more at risk for human trafficking and why they are commonly overlooked.
2: At Freedom 424, we believe every human life deserves to be free from exploitation and trafficking. We are dedicated to educating our sphere of influence to protect the vulnerable.
1: Our vision at Freedom 424 remains the same to live in a world where slavery is eradicated and justice prevails. I'm Jacob Valier,
2: And I'm Emily Worsham.
1: And this is The Compelled Podcast.
2: This podcast engages in conversations that may be sensitive for some. Thank you for listening. We've often heard the statement that traffickers do not discriminate based on race and ethnicity. However, studies show that this may not be the case. Today, we're talking with Linda Ellis-Williams, who is the Senior Managing Director of Victim Services with the YWCA of Central Virginia. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today and having this conversation with us. Thank you, Emily, for inviting Yes, we're really excited. Um, And to get things started, I'd love for you to share a little of your story, if you're willing, and how that brought you to where you are today. So back in the 60s, my parents decided to get together
0: and they were a couple of biracial folks. So my mom was white. My dad was black. Uh, Number one, that was a really bad time for people of color to be with people uh, uh, out of their race, Mm -hmm. Hard on both sides of the the field here. And so my mom and dad got together. And let me say that both of them came from households that tend to have violence as a norm. Mm -hmm. They married. Their marriage was very, very hard on both parties. And so they seemed to bring out the worst in each other as we're trying to survive and cope through these times. So as a child, I grew up witnessing violence on a weekly, daily event and saw a lot of things, witnessed a lot of things and went through a lot of things that children just should not have to go through. Mm -hmm. Um, Needless to say, a lot of the trauma and the experiences that I had set me right up to become a victim of someone in my adult age. So at a very young age, I'm married and an abuser. And um, I can't say I didn't know he was an abuser because about a month prior to me walking down the aisle to say I do, there was a horrible, very violent incident that took place. Following that incident was what I know today is just a cycle of abuse where it was followed by, sorry, please forgive me, don't or everything. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be in this world by myself, please da 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 da. And I fell for it. And the next eight and a half years lived a um, cycle of just abuse, abuse, abuse um, of that marriage. We had three children. And then finally, they I went to the doctor, and I, the doctor was me and saw a footprint, a boot print, a back, uh, which yeah. had been about three to four days old from the assault that took place then and gave me a brochure about this place, this awesome, awesome place called the YWCA Domestic Violence Prevention Program that helps um, victims of domestic violence to free themselves from this lifestyle. I held on to that thing for a while, and after our third child was born, there was another incident of violence that ended us up in the um, criminal justice system, of which a judge ordered my husband into anger management classes Court ordered me into a class for victims of domestic violence. Best thing that ever happened to me, because it was there that I learned that I was a generational person mm-hmm. of domestic violence, um, right. and that somewhere a long time ago somebody planted the seed that this was a norm, and I fell right into the statistics that I that I would grow up and become a victim in adult age as well. And so learning that and going to these support groups, I learned that you know, guess what? These beautiful little kids that you're so concerned about are going to be the next generation of either victims or perpetrators of abuse. And I had to make a decision that, you know, my children's lives were worth more than this, and I was going to break that generational cycle of abuse.
2: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Can you share a little bit about what you are doing and what the YWCA of Central Virginia is doing today?
0: Absolutely. So, the YWCA, um, we're all about programs. And programs, our mission is to eliminate racism and to empower women. So, um, we like to think of ourselves as people out there on the forefront of helping to establish programs, policies, and procedures to help pull victims out of victimization. So, we, our focuses are on domestic violence and sexual violence. We have a housing program that specifically addresses poverty and people's place of living. Adequate for single women to be able to survive, and so our goal is to to really, truly to to make an indent in helping people to come out of victimization and become not just a survivor but an overcome.
2: Yes, that's so important. Thank you again for what you all are doing and the excellent work that you're doing in in Central Virginia and beyond, really as well. So. In continuing this conversation, or really to start this conversation about race and how that plays into trafficking and exploitation, I first want to start by sharing two studies that were done, one in Louisiana and one in King County, Washington. So the first in Louisiana found that black girls account for nearly 49% of child sex trafficking victims, even though they only compromise approximately 19% of Louisiana's youth population. And then the second in King County, Washington, found that 84% of child sex trafficking victims are black, while black children and adults together make up about 7% of the general population. So the first question that probably comes to a lot of listeners minds in hearing those two studies are why and how why are people of color statistically trafficked and exploited more and how does race play a role in trafficking it's not they're not simple questions that we're going to answer in this podcast because it ties into systemic racism. So if you could define what systemic racism is. So systemic
0: racism is a set of practices that discriminate basis race. Today, you might even hear the words of structural racism or institutional racism, and we can trace it all the way back to our constitution. So the United States was formed on the back of, of, of this, of, systematic racism. If you think about the language that's written in the Constitution where black people are property of white people. So together what this does is it has plays recognition to the fact of of slavery is the cornerstone of racist social systems and it sets the tone for where we are today if you if you want to consider the fact that black people are disfortunately at a higher level of poverty, a higher level of issues. If we were looking at an ACEs score, there's lots of things that could point out that kind of direct someone's path of of why they're in the midst of what they are in. And so we could look at this path and see that it totally leads to set people of color at a higher risk of becoming victim of pretty much anything.
2: So... You touched on a few things in that definition of of systemic racism. Can you speak a little bit more into some of those ways in which systemic racism creates those vulnerabilities that lead people of color to be trafficked more?
0: So Emily, one of the things that I think we need to really look at is the fact that Non-white children represent about 77% of child sex traffic victims here in the United States. And that is huge. That is huge. And so, you know, these are children who are coming from all walks of life, but are entrapped. So wherever you have racism, it lends itself to poverty and exclusion. And we find the pathway to um, sexual exploitation, to poverty stricken areas, you have higher levels of health concerns, we have we deal with folks with no or under educated. So when you find issues like this, you see that folks who are coming from a very high poverty level also become uh, parts of the justice system. So when you're looking at that, you're looking at, you know, people who believe that, you know, this is a norm for me. I can't do any better than this. Society itself or their family lifestyle has pretty much set them up for the things that they're going to encounter that put them in this high-risk population.
2: Yeah, I was actually in research for this conversation, came across an article by Todd Nahasi Coates, The Case for Reparations. I'm not sure if you've read that. Yes, I have. Excellent article. And in that article, he mentioned that the income gap between black and white households is roughly the same today as it was in 1970, over 50 years ago. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: so, yeah, I think poverty is a, a huge vulnerability. We see that outside of America as well, as well in trafficking and exploitation. Poverty Absolutely. is a huge risk to being exploited. And today the income gap is there. It's a gap. It's it's not the same. Absolutely. And also going to, I think you briefly mentioned it, but generational wealth. People of color don't have the generational wealth or often don't have generational wealth as do white individuals because of things such as redlining, sharecropping, not being able to get fair mortgages. And so they're not able to build up their wealth. Absolutely. To get out of that poverty to begin with.
0: Yeah. And if you think about it, people of color, you think about um, where where are our roots? So our roots are established in slavery. So all the things, the traumas that our grandfathers, grandmothers went through, they passed that on from generation to generation. So you talk about a high number of people who may or may not be depressed, talk about folks who could have mental health disorders, you talk about a a group of people who could have issues just coping in general, and so then you have to move into what are the coping skills? Are the coping skills drugs and alcohol? So there's lots of things that get people along the way into this. And if you're talking about drugs and alcohol, then you're talking about, you know, a history of people having the welfare in their business, you know, social services. You talk about children who've been pulled away from their families who go to foster care. You talk about just dysfunction in, in general. And if you think about that, this creates the perfect storm for traffickers. It just creates the perfect storm.
2: Right. I want to go back to something that you briefly mentioned when you defined systemic racism. You touched on criminalization of people of color. One study found that 57% of juvenile prostitution arrests are Black children, which, I mean, there's so many things that are wrong with that One of the biggest being is that under US federal law, anyone under the age of 18 who is performing some sort of sex act, whether willingly or not, is considered a victim of sex trafficking. So my first question is, Why were they even arrested to begin with if they're a juvenile? The second question is, why are people of color criminalized more than white individuals are?
0: Well, again, we can trace that all the way back to slavery, number one. And number two, anytime that you pull up your TV, you watch news, you go to movies, you watch a show on TV, any of those things, what you mostly are going to see is Black people or people of color who are um, the criminal, right? So you said, and you, as a young mind, might watch um, show after show after show that depicts Black men as rapists or criminals or thieves or kidnappers, any of those kind of things. As time goes by, you hear some awful, awful stories about what Black person may have done or da 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 da. da. So it's forming your mindset, right? And so as an adult, then you think, well, no, I I better not go over there because I've heard of how those Black people are or whatever. Or then you get into a field where you want to bring about justice in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so you think, well, I want to be someone who helps society. I want to do this and do this. But you have all these isms in your head that you form just because you saw Black or people of color in these awful positions, right? So your mindset already is that predominantly this crime or whatever is committed by people of color. So if I'm in a role as a police officer, if I'm in a role as a prosecutor, if I'm in a role as anyone in the criminal justice system, and I've already got these biases going on in my head, then if I'm approached or I'm I'm at a scene where there's a crime taking place and the person is prosecuting, because these isms are already in my head, it makes it easier for me not to see this person as a victim, but to see this person who is committing a crime. When we have all of this, again, perfect storm going on in our heads and what's actuality of what's happening, it's easy to make an arrest because we don't see the the children of color as victims. It's almost like we have to humanize them and, and see them as from that are uh, causing the crime.
2: Right. And I think because of that, because we criminalize individuals who are in reality victims, minor individuals of color we often adultify them. So make Absolutely. them out to be or expect them to act as if they were an adult and make decisions as if they were an adult that sets them up to be vulnerable to being exploited to be vulnerable to someone who messaged them on Instagram and tells them that they love them, and they want to protect them, and they will support them and take care of all their needs, when in reality, that individual is going to exploit them.
0: Absolutely. All that they need is an opportunity, an opportunity. So children coming from broken homes, children living in poverty, children who have single parent household where the mom or dad is working around the clock and the child has all this free time to be on the internet and listening, or, you know, children who have low self-esteem, who, you know, might make bad decisions. Based on the fact that they don't think very much of themselves, that's a perfect playground for a predator. And so that's a, some grooming will take place. But I will say to you, for children coming from that, from what I just described, not a lot of grooming needs to take place. It's just mm-hmm. a fact of promises made that, that kind of strokes the person and says, you know, I care for you, I'll love you, I'll take care of you, I'll provide you for you. And you know, if you think about the human being, you know, we're born want, we desire to be approved, to be loved. And so if a perpetrator is promising me all of these things, it's very easy for me to fall into that.
2: Yeah. And I think another piece of this complicated and complex puzzle is the often lack of education and other resources and that reminds me of the school to prison pipeline in that mm-hmm. children of color are more likely to be suspended or expelled for doing the same action that a white child would have done and and not receive any repercussions from that and so that leads to them, like I said, being expelled or suspended from school and not getting that education as a white child would. And Emily, how do we think that
0: children or people without education are going to support themselves?
2: Mm -hmm. You know,
0: when the opportunity arises, I can make somebody promised me I can make some quick money. I need to keep my lights on. I need to, you know, to live. I need to eat. So there again, there's another opportunity.
2: Yeah. And like you just mentioned, I, a lot of these things are so connected and interwoven. Absolutely. The lack of education leads to poverty. But yeah, all of these pieces to this puzzle are all connected and Absolutely. all create this problem of systemic racism.
0: Absolutely. I remember when I first started out and I wasn't in this field yet. I, I, come June I'll be in this field for 30 years. Wow. Um, but I, I had a job when I worked at a local social services department. And I was hired to go into families where there was dysfunction. What what got social services into the family was neglect charge or a neglect report that came in and concerning this child's health. Well, we got into it and the whole matter went like this child turned out to be HIV positive, and this was a five or six-year-old child. And so when social services started digging a little deeper, the truth came out that this mother was addicted to drugs, and she was allowing men to have sex with her child to afford her addiction. I think that was my first reality of child sex trafficking out of her own home, not by this big monster who contacted or kidnapped or did any of those things, whatever, this child was sex trafficked by her own mother in Mm -hmm. her home. So these kind of things happen on a regular as well.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So our podcast, you know, is listened to individuals outside of the Central Virginia region. But I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit into the socioeconomic divide here in this area.
0: Well, certainly. I know um, in our area, they did a study several years ago, and they, in Lynchburg, is considered 24% poverty. So that's 24% of residents who actually live in our community live poverty. So again, talk about a perfect storm. These are families who lack of education, lack of employment. Homelessness, domestic violence, sexual violence, trauma throughout the generation after generation. um, It's just the perfect storm. So if we think about 24% of our families living in poverty, so those are folks who at any time, the intersections of poverty, of lack of education, of domestic violence, sexual violence, of criminalization, of jails, like you said, the pathway to prison—all of those things are intersectionality that are going to cause harm to these individuals, to these families. Again, it's the perfect setup for folks to be used uh, by sex traffickers, by any form of humilization. And so, it's huge. And and I'm sure that there are other communities mimic us. In that poverty rate, especially these days.
2: Yeah, and you know, I, I do want to point out that yes, poverty is a huge vulnerability to trafficking and exploitation. However, that's not the only vulnerability. And we know that, for example, in Loudoun County, Virginia, which is one of the wealthiest counties in the nation, a few years ago there was a sex trafficking ring. In which minor girls were being exploited after school and then would go home and their parents had no idea this was happening. And, you know, they were wealthy, educated individuals. So, you know, like I said, that it's not the only vulnerability Absolutely. But not. It is a, a very large one. And we know that traffickers prey on all sorts of vulnerabilities. Absolutely. And I will say the, the
0: elephant in the room is that children, if you put children, you have to put vulnerability right beside it because, and that's what perpetrators prey on is, is, you know, just children in general, not knowing, not knowing how to protect themselves, not not being able to recognize what's in front of them. And I think that if you look at that study that was done with Loudoun County, you know, you had a bunch of young folks who wanted to belong, wanted to be part of. And once they were in the midst of it, there were situations and reasons why they just didn't walk out, why they didn't tell their parents, you know. And so again, it doesn't have to be poverty that they could. It could be anything, and, and perpetrators can find can their way into deceiving our children from any walks of life.
2: I think we've, we've led up to this point in this conversation, but I, I wanted to just get your take on it. Like I started this episode, I have often said, and I've heard it other places, which is that traffickers don't discriminate based on race or ethnicity. But the more that we're sharing today, the more that we're learning. I'm wondering if that's the case or not and what your your take on that is.
0: Well, I certainly think they don't discriminate. What I think is They look for windows of opportunity. And with all the conversation that has led us up to this point, we can certainly see why some races of children are more vulnerable than others. And so that's what perpetrators or sex traffickers will look for is any way that they can can engage and force and pull our children in, and so the vulnerability of who they are certainly makes it much easier for them too.
2: Right, right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. The window of opportunity is definitely very large with individuals of color, and in all of those areas that we just addressed, poverty, lack of education, lack of other resources, family background, and how their families dealt with trauma, other problems, and it, it leaves a window of opportunity.
0: And this terrible, terrible coercion of doing this, these horrible things just to survive, that we look at is if we're able to pull or win, not if, because I know that, that we really keep this conversation going, and like I said, start to have those programs place. but that's a huge number. That's a very huge number. And so we need to make sure that our programs are uh, dedicated and educated on what the needs of these children are or any sex trafficking victim. We're talking about adults as well.
2: What are some things that we can do to stop this gap between white and non-white victims of trafficking?
0: Well, I think with any victimization, the key is knowledge of actually knowing what is happening in our country what is happening in the world what is happening to our children how we move from child sex traffic victim to an adult prostitute they like even when and if she is free from the sex traffickers why does she still prostitute like all of those things are important to know and able in order for us to be able to help people and it's all about helping in, to understand the trauma that they've been through, and how do we reduce the amount of trauma? How do we give hope? I think that's that's huge. And how do we, again, prepare these folks so that they have better options, they're in a better standing, be able to move forward to a more positive life?
2: And in line with that, I'd love to know if... You could have the listeners walk away with one thing today from our conversation. What would it be? The one thing I
0: think would be, again, understanding of who these children are, of who these adults are, and to realize that I can't, I don't want the world just to see me as a rescuer, right? So I just rushed in and I goal is to change folks' life. I need to be able to really help the person that I'm there to serve. I need to have programs and people in place that when I walk through the door as a victim, I see people who look like me, right? And so I'm feeling more comfortable. I need to have signage and things that I recognize when I walk in. I need to have things that say I care about, that I'm worth helping, that I'm worth having a better life, but also to recognize what's in our community that needs to be changed. So if we talked about the fact that systematic racism is a perfect playground for sex traffickers, right, then what can we do as an individual that helps turn all those things? Can I be more knowledgeable when I see racism happening? Can I be more knowledgeable when I see victimization? Do I I desire to have a more level playing field where all people are created equal? And so until we get to that point, we're always going to have a perfect so I think just realizing me as an individual, what is it that I that can certainly reach a place where we can see fewer sex victims in our world?
2: Yeah, and I will leave some of the articles that I have mentioned in our show notes under this episode for education and for our listeners to look into is, do you have any education resources about racism in America? Well, I don't have any particular that I would put out there, but I would
0: say the starting place, again, we're talking about this wonderful internet. So the starting place is just to to start opening your eyes and your ears and your heart to seeing the injustices that happen to people of color every day. And just doing your own research, forming your own opinion, knowing that what our prejudices are, what our biases already are against nations of people and starting there and then working from the inside out because it's it's about me and how I feel about things, right? And so if I'm in denial that I have any of those biases or prejudices, then I'm not going to be able to move forward and help anybody.
2: I've Mm -hmm. got
0: to really do the work on myself and then start
2: to do the work in society. Yeah. And I, I think another important thing is to listen to people of color, to listen to their experiences, to hear what they have to say. And, you know, one of our biggest things for this season on the Compelled podcast is that we believe that everyone has worth and they deserve dignity and respect and freedom. Absolutely. No matter their race, no matter their gender identity, no matter their religion, as human beings, we all deserve dignity and freedom.
0: I've heard people say that this is a, a women's issue. I've heard people say this is a sexual issue, call it many, many things. I think it's a humanity issue. Exactly, Yep. Yeah.
2: We all have some sort of role to play in this fight against trafficking and exploitation. No matter who we are, where we are, what we do, we all have some sort of role to play. So my last question for you, something that we ask all of our guests, what compels you in this fight against exploitation, trafficking, abuse, I, I think
0: it's, I'm in a perfect place that I see this on a day-to-day basis. I see so many folks come into our shelter who have just been dehumanized, devalued, hurt. And so my desire to help those people is just huge, Emily. It, I mean, I see folks who come into our, our, our programs who were sexually abused as children. And some of those folks have developed multiple personalities and everything to the point that they're almost just barely functioning as a human being. And so they come into our programs and they're just, they're at our, at our hands just saying, now what? Now what? And so my drive to secure worth in this person, to show them that you're valuable and that we care And you deserve the best of the best in life. It just it motivates me every single day to Mm -hmm. see like how can we turn this person's life around and give her the value and respect that she so deserves.
2: Yes, yeah. She, he, or them. Anyone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing and having this conversation with me today. And I will definitely put a link to the YWCA of Central Virginia in the show notes as well. Are there other ways that people can get in contact with you and support your work?
0: Absolutely. They can um, get on to our internet address is www.ywcaofcentralvirginia.org. You can reach us by that. Or you can call 434-528-1041. We are available 24 hours a day. We want to help. We care. If you're interested in getting involved as far as volunteering, we love volunteerism as well. We have plenty of opportunities for people to get involved and make a difference in other people's lives. So we want to hear from you. So please be in touch.
1: Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform and leave a rating.
2: Consider becoming an ally today and help us prevent and end exploitation and trafficking at freedom424.org ally.
1: Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Freedom424.
2: Thank you for listening.